Alrighty. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. That's good. Three of you are doing well. Three of you are doing well. Um, well, it is uh, great to gather again as a church and have this time to open up God's Word. Uh, if this is uh, your first time with us, welcome. Uh, and if this is not your first time with us, welcome. Glad, glad everyone's here uh, and that we can gather. Uh, as Nino mentioned at the very beginning, uh, this is the final uh, final week in the series that we've been going through uh, this summer called Can He Be Trusted, which uh, we've been looking at kind of the words and the works of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, specifically Mark chapters 4 to 8. Uh, and as we've been doing so, uh, you might have guessed as Christians that the answer is yes, we, we do. We've talked about that quite often. We do believe Jesus can be trusted. But another thing that we've talked about often throughout this series is that when we're asking this question, that we're not just asking a mental, logical question, can he be? But practically, as we walk through our lives, can he be? Right, which is a question as we get closer to school starting. And I don't know about you, Facebook groups that I'm on, social media that I'm in, there's a lot of fear around a lot of things. There's a lot of uh, other things going on in our city. There's a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of debates and fights over various things. There's a lot of injustices that we see from lots of different levels. Like there is a lot of things that when we started this series 10 weeks ago, we thought, hey, maybe in 10 weeks, life will be a little bit calmer. Uh, and no, no, it is not. Uh, it is crazier. And so there's even more opportunities throughout our lives, not only in this season, but in every season, for us to really, as Christians, not just simply say that we trust Jesus logically, but, but we have this opportunity to walk throughout our everyday lives, really asking, do we actively trust Jesus as we're walking through the real things that we really walk through? Right? Can Jesus be trusted when we get the phone call from our doctor that says that we have uh, cancer or, or that says that we have dementia or those that we love, are, their bodies are riddled with sickness and various things that will kill them? How do we respond in the midst of this world when, when lots of things are going to come our way? Can Jesus be trusted then? Right? So, so that's more what we're asking for, not just not a logical question of, yes, he can, check. Right? But, but no, actually, for us as Christians, can he be trusted with various situations? And we freely admit that there are many things that we walk through in life where trusting him is difficult. Right? Like, there's lots of things we walk through in life. Trusting him is difficult as we do so. And, and uh, one thing that we've been talking about often is a song that I sing to my sons uh, when they tell me that they're afraid at night when they're about to go to bed uh, is uh, from the book of... Um, of Psalm uh, 56, verses three and four. And I love the way that it starts. It says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Not if you are, right? Like Christians don't walk through life just impervious to fear. Like you become a Christian, you're a superman or superwoman now, and you, just, you have no fears. No, like there are still things we walk through. And yet when we are afraid, we have a place to go to. We, we have God's word and his promises to walk back to and to remember his faithfulness, that he is sovereign, that he is God, he is in control of all things, including the days that we live, how many days we will live, and he's sovereign over the day that we will die. None of this will take him by surprise. And so it's these truths that we, we walk through and we have to encourage one another in as we, we walk through life and as we walk through God's word. And so as we're walking today through Mark chapter eight or big number eight uh, verses or smaller numbers, uh, 22 to 30, what we're going to see is we're going to see two scenes as we're kind of wrapping up this, this series. The first is, is that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And it's, it's all about a man who is born blind, or not born blind, but, but who has become blind. 
And then he is healed by Jesus. And then the second scene is gonna be a conversation between Jesus and the disciples where Peter is gonna make this beautiful confession that Jesus is the Messiah. It is a massive turning point. It is the shifting point in the whole book of Mark. It's been all along like, who is this man? Can he be trusted? Who is he? And then Peter's confession today is sort of like a boom, stake in the ground that the rest of the book of Mark will unpack of what does it mean for him to be the Messiah, the Christ. And so today is a massive turning point where Jesus will from this point out as he's on his way towards Jerusalem to die, where he will walk with his disciples and teach them a bit more about who he is and what does it mean to live in his kingdom. So let's pray today, and then we're going to dive into our text. So Father, we, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray as we open your word that you would meet with us and that you would supply us with everything that we need for life and for godliness. I pray that you would allow us to love you more as a result of our time together today. We, we pray, as, as we sang a moment ago, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and minds to comprehend and hearts that are soft. And we ask all this knowing that, that if you provide this, it'll be a miracle. If we walk out of here loving you more today, it, it, will, be be, it will be because of your grace and by your grace alone. And, and so we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first scene that we, we have before us is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. And uh, if you're looking in your Bible, you can see right over this, it says Jesus heals a man, uh, a blind man at Bethsaida. So we know that Jesus is going to heal a blind man. Uh, but before we get to that, it's interesting to note, this is the very first time in the gospel of Mark where Jesus heals someone who is blind which sounds interesting. I mean, so far, what, we have, what have we seen? We've seen Jesus heal someone that was deaf and mute. We've seen him heal a woman who had a flow of blood for many, many years, 12 years, in fact, and he healed her on the spot. We saw a man with a withered hand that Jesus commanded him to stretch out his hand, which is something he couldn't do by his own strength. And yet, by Jesus's word, he now has power to open his hand that once he, he could not. We saw a paralytic that was healed, a man able to walk. We saw a leper who was healed. We, we saw many others with unspecified diseases and maladies, thousands of them that Jesus has healed. And we've also seen him cast out demons and we've seen him bring a little girl back to life. However, this is the very first time in the gospel of Mark where we're gonna see him heal a blind man. It's one of the things that the Old Testament, what Nino read for us at the very beginning from, from Isaiah is one of the things the Old Testament signals to us that Jesus is the promised one of God. It's the hallmark of the coming of the kingdom of God. There are blind people that receive their sight. And so let's dive in. We're going to look at verse 22, and we're going to see how this situation unfolds. So God's word <clears throat> says that they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So we're going to stop right there. And the first thing that I want us to do is to notice that the story that, we're, that is before us starts with a problem. There's a man who is blind that needs to be healed from his blindness. And notice as well that it's the initiative of these people. We don't know who they are. Some people, they know this blind man and they hear that Jesus has great compassion and power and is able to heal people. And so when they, when they hear about that, they take this man by the hand and they bring him all the way to Jesus that's a beautiful phrase. 
And then when they get there, they beg Jesus, Jesus, please touch him. And as I was reading this story recently to Owen, our oldest son, and he was just dumbfounded that people were blind. He's never heard of, I, he's heard that before. We've walked through this in the Bible before, but I think it's the first time he's like, wait, people can't see? Uh, and I was like, yeah. So we were explaining to him this, this, uh, this past week during our family worship at night uh, before we go to bed where we read God's word and sing together and pray together. I, and I, we were walking through this. He's like, people are blind. I was like, yeah, buddy. He's like, but what? What do you mean they can't see? That doesn't make sense. So we're trying to explain to him how some people are born blind and other people, because of accidents, they, they become blind. And as we were thinking about that, and as I was walking through this text, it, 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 it made me really think about how in our culture, specifically with blind people, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't see lots of blind people every day, every now and then maybe, but I do see evidence that there are blindness around me. I see Braille everywhere right? Like bathroom doors and everywhere that you go, there's, there's Braille sort of kind of everywhere. So I know there are blind people around, but in our culture, what, what do we do when we see someone who's blind that is unable to open a door or do something for them? We, we quickly help them, right? We're like, oh, let me help. They're like, how can I help you cross the street? Like, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to help. I don't know the appropriate way to ask if I can help, but I, I want to help. I don't know. I, right? You have this, this compassion for them as people. But that, that isn't true in every culture in our world. I don't know if you know that. that. It's not common everywhere. In fact, in Jesus' day, it wasn't very common for people to have a very uh, compassionate, sorrowful look upon those who are blind. In fact, we know from John's gospel that blindness was often seen in Jesus' day in a negative way. Blindness was often explained as a consequence of sin. So for example, if you wanna look with me, you can flip over to John 9, or I'm gonna throw it up on the screen in a moment. But in John chapter nine, there is a man who was born blind. And this is the question that was posed to him. Um, sorry, it was posed to him. And it is, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Right, I mean, that's not a question we ask when we see a blind person. We're not like, who sinned? You or your parents? Right, like that's, that's not a question that we ask. We're like, well, we just know you're born in a broken world and sometimes there's just, there's blindness. It's, there's all kinds of things that we walk through in, in life. But, but in this day, the, this question was, was asked because it had been taught that blindness was tied to sin. And Jesus responded to them. He said, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is why he has blindness in, in John chapter nine, that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus assures them that although there is this teaching kind of circulating that blindness was brought about by sinfulness, this isn't universally true. I mean, some people, do they have blindness because of sin? Maybe. But other people, did they, were they blind because of sin? No. Like in the case of this man, he was born blind, Jesus says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had a very specific person, uh, purpose for why this man was born blind, and it was to glorify himself. And Jesus ended up healing this man, and this man stood before the Jewish rulers in John chapter 9, and the works of God were put on display miraculously so that the rulers of Israel would see the mighty works of God that they could not deny were coming through Jesus. They knew what it meant for the blind to be healed. They, they understood the scriptures. They knew if this was true, they were seeing the work of the Messiah standing before him, and they did not like that. And so I, I mention all that, not because the story in Mark and the story in John are the same. They're not. 
Uh, there's a few hints as to how we know that's true. Uh, for one, the guy in the book of John, he was born blind. But in a moment, if you look actually real quick at Mark chapter 8, verse 24, you'll see that, that the man knows what trees look like. So blind people don't know what trees look like. I mean, this guy knows what a tree looks like and he knows what a person looks like. So, so when he is first healed, at first touch of Jesus, he sees people and they, they look like trees. So he knows what a tree looks like. And then later we see that his sight was restored. So, so we know this man is, is not the same man as John chapter nine. They're different, they're different guys. But, but one thing that we see that's, that's the same in both of them is that God intended whatever this blindness that they had to be for glorifying himself. God had gracious designs, even in such a sorrowful thing. But before we get to the healing, I want us to pause and I want us to think about this man's life. Knowing that the culture in his day would have thought that blindness was a result of some kind of sin, I want you to think about kind of his everyday life. Think about him, how he would have been a spectacle warning against unfaithfulness. He would have been a man that when parents walked with their kids in the marketplace and they saw him as a blind man, they would say, don't sin, kids. You don't want to be like that person. God might smite you with blindness. Right? So his whole life, he's used as an object lesson, as a man who could not see. It got me thinking about how people can just be cruel, can't they? Like they can just be cruel. But notice as well that Jesus is shockingly different than these people. I mean, outrageously different than these people. He doesn't play the wicked games of the religious leaders of his day, wondering out loud, who sinned, this man or his parents? That's not what he does. He doesn't look at people with sickness or illness or mutilations or blindness and make spectacles out of them. He doesn't say that they are that way because of a sin in their life or because of a lack of faith. He does not say that. No, when they bring this man before Jesus, we read that Jesus takes him away privately, away from the prying, judgmental eyes of all these people in Bethsaida. Jesus is gentle and compassionate with this man. In fact, look with me in verse 23. We read that he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. He led him out of the village, out of the place where he was always gawked at where he was always made a spectacle and he led him away from the center of all of their eyes. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And I know in a world of COVID, this seems very strange. And he's spitting on someone's eyes. That's the, that's the definition of speaking moistly. You know what I mean? Like, that's crazy. But, but I want to stop for a moment. I don't know if you know this, but I found out in researching and reading this past week, this is the only time that Jesus, uh, having touched someone for healing, that he stops right afterwards and asks how they're doing. Did you know that? This is the only time. Uh, Mark actually is the only person that records this story. Matthew, Luke, and John in their gospels, they don't have this story. This is the only place that we get this in the entire New Testament is, is telling the story. And Jesus, upon touching the man, spitting on him and touching him, asks him, do you see? How are you? See, Jesus is making a point here. Something is happening and we need to look more closely. What is happening? It's also an interesting question. It reminds us of something that Jesus said last week. If you remember from last week, or if you want to look back just in, in the few verses right before this, Jesus had just fed 4,000 people at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, miraculously in a desolate place, these Gentiles, no less, the people that were the enemies of the Jews, and Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, provided for them. He had compassion for them. 
And then he was accosted by some religious leaders, the Pharisees, who demanded a sign from God in order to disprove Jesus. They hated Jesus and they said, prove to us, we need a sign from God, prove to us. But nothing would prove to them. And Jesus got in the boat with his disciples and warned them against the leaven or the teaching and the hypocrisy of those leaders. But the disciples didn't understand that. They thought Jesus was just talking about bread. They thought Jesus was like, man, you guys forgot bread? And they're like, we only have one loaf. Jesus is like, I, did you just see what I just did? I, I could take one loaf and fill this entire boat. The, the, the issue is not physical bread. The issue is the teaching and the hypocrisy of these, of these leaders. And then he looks at them and he asks, having eyes, do you not see? And then he says, do you not understand? And then here in Bethsaida, he, he looks at this man after touching him and he says, do you see anything? See, it's, it's, it's sort of the same question that he's asking. It's interesting. And the story continues in verse 24. It says, and he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees who are walking. And, and it's not like he's talking about Lord of the Rings. Remember, Lord of the Rings hasn't been written yet, right? So, so it's not that. Uh, it, it lets us know that he, he is partial seeing, but not full seeing. He knows what people looks like. He, he knows what trees look like. And so, and so he, can, he can see sort of, but it's not, it's not clear. This is strange, isn't it? This is a strange thing. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. You're like, again? And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And this whole scene, the more that you think about it, the more interesting it becomes. It's the story of this twofold healing of this blind man. And it's, it's strange. There's spitting and there's touching of his eyes. And, and if you've ever studied any other religions like animism or spiritism or new age or Kabbalah or shamanism or various other things, you might be looking at this situation and you say, well, I think Jesus is simply doing the rituals of a miracle worker, a holy man. That's what it looks like, right? Something that you would see in the Amazonian rainforest or out in the, the rice fields of Asia. But categorically, you'd be wrong, in fact, one thing that we've seen repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark is that when Jesus does the miraculous, there's no like arm waving, right? There's no like special incantation that he does. There's no like mumbo jumbo that he, he like says over and over and over again, like ba ba da ba 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 ba. Like he doesn't stir anything up in order to like bring his powers of healing. No, in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus just tells demons, go, and, and they go. Or people that are dead, he just says, get up. And they just get up. He just has to work himself into a frenzy in order to heal or in order to do anything. So you're reading this, you're like, what is going on here? Obviously, he doesn't need to do this. So why is he? Why is he? Why have these two stages and why ask this question? What, what is going on here? And those are the questions we should be asking. Why have a partial healing where the man can partly see, sort of, but then, and then a second touch where all of a sudden he can now flawlessly see, even at a great distance. This guy now has beyond perfect eyesight, right? Like, did Jesus get it wrong the first time, right? Like, kind of botched it, right? Like, oh, I tried to heal you. I did the wrong thing, right? I touched you in the wrong place or something, right? Is the lesson that we get from this, like, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? Like, that's what we're to walk away with. Or is, 
is this story showing us that this healing of the man is dependent upon his faith. Maybe the man needed to grow in his faith in order to be healed perfectly. And this story is meant to show us that what we need to do in order to claim God's healing is just have more faith. God heals over time. No, regardless of what you hear on the Miracle Channel, that is not true. That is never true in the Bible, not once. Although if you turn on the Miracle Channel, you'll hear that almost in every sermon you listen to. But, but it's not true. It's not, it's not in the Bible. And that's not Christianity at all. So why then? Why this miracle with this two-step process? And, and to be honest, we don't have an answer to that question. Right? You're reading the exact same thing I do in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why this happens. There's not some, some verse somewhere in Hebrews we can turn to and say, look, ha-ha, there it is. We know why this happened. There's, there's nowhere that we, we can turn to other than just studying and looking at the text as it is. There's no clear thing that we see. There's no sentence that tells us why this scenario happened the way that it is. So, so why do we, or what do we do with this? Well, when we don't know what is happening in a text, we need to do two different things. Firstly, we need to examine the immediate context for clues. Are you, you're reading something and you're like, well, I don't know what to do with this. You look in the immediate context, what are the clues that we see? And then secondly, we need to examine the letter as a whole. This is what we do as students of the Bible whenever we're, we're looking at something and we're like, what do we do with this? Well, what do we do with this? This is what we do. And as we do these things, we get some clues as to what might be happening, which leads us to make educated guesses. That's a lot of what we do is we're reading, we're like, I think maybe this is what is what is going on? And, and as we do that, there's some interesting things that we begin to see. But one of them is something we mentioned a moment ago in the question of Jesus. Remember, he asked his, his disciples at the end of uh, those lists of nine questions that he asked in Mark chapter 8, verses 17 to 21. He asked if they had eyes to see. He said, do you have eyes to see? Do you understand? And then we get this story of this twofold physical healing where a man is given eyes to see some things. And then at the touch of Jesus, he's given the ability to see things clearly and perfectly. So some have suggested that this twofold healing is meant to demonstrate how God will give us uh, a twofold spiritual healing in the eyes of the disciples. For the gospel of Mark traces that for the, gospel, for the, for the disciples. At the beginning of the gospel, we see that they are blind to the things of God. They do not know who Jesus is or what he's all about. Spiritually, they are blind. And as they, we walk through the gospel of Mark, although they start out as blind, God produces miracles in them where they begin to see things about Jesus. And as they begin to see these things about Jesus, they give, they're given eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see by faith, to trust in these things that they see. They have partial sight. But it won't be until the very end of the gospel of Mark where these disciples will have perfect sight. It is only then where they will see Jesus die and rise from the dead. And they're like, what? Like they don't see it coming at all, right? Jesus keeps saying throughout the rest of the book of Mark, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and then I'm gonna rise from the dead. And they're like, oh, great. This is some spiritual metaphor. I get it. And then Jesus dies and they're like, what? And he rises from the dead and they're like, oh, 
I get it. Right? And so, and so what we see is, is some people think that this is tracing the, the disciples who go from blind to partially seeing to seeing throughout the gospel of Mark. And I'm partial to that. I'm partial to, to that because I, I, I believe it kind of fits with the overall scope of the gospel of Mark, but also traces what we've seen so far with blindness to the reality of, of the disciples. They're kind of still blind on who Jesus is. Again, if you remember from a few weeks ago, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then he walked on water, he gets into the boat and this is what we read. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. And then last week, of course, do not yet perceive or understand. Are your hearts hardened? So that's what I think is going on. This twofold healing of this blind man. It's not that Jesus botched the healing, but rather he's intentionally healing this man in two stages. And notice he is the one that draws attention to it. He brings our focus to us. He wants us to see it. And Mark, in recounting to us the miracles of Christ, as he is guided by the Spirit, he's the only gospel writer that uses this opportunity so that we are asked as well, what about us? Do we see something as we are examining the life of Jesus, as we've seen all that he's taught, all that he's done up to this point, do we see the, the blind opening their eyes? Do we see the deaf hearing? Do we hear the mute tongue shouting for joy? And in that, do we join with Isaiah 35 and recognize Jesus is the promised one? He is the Messiah. He is God come to save us. He is the King. Do we see it? And I believe that this reading of the text it also resounds with me so clearly because it's how the gospel of Mark unfolds with the disciples, but, but it's also how our relationship with God unfolds. Isn't it? I mean, it's the story of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, and it's, it's true today. If you are a Christian, this is sort of your story. All of us have been, have been born into this world as spiritually blind to the things of God. We thought we saw clearly, and we were blind. I mean, totally blind. We had ideas about God. We thought we knew things about God. And yet we were spiritually blind. We thought we were born into this world, maybe spiritually neutral at worst or spiritually good at best. We, we thought we were, were pretty okay. But the truth is that we are born into this world hating the things of God. None of us is born into this world seeing the things of God clearly. We're born broken, spiritually dead. We are those who want to be like God, deciding for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We want to be God. We don't want God to tell us this is good and this is evil. We want to say, no, 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 no. I know what is good for me and what's good for me is this. These are conversations that we have with people that we know, but these are also conversations that we have within our own hearts before we were given sight to see. And in so doing, what we did was to war against the only living and true God. And the consequences for that was death and eternal unending judgment, the wrath of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were at war within him, he came to us in our blindness and gave us eyes to see something beautiful about Jesus. And that's how our journey of faith began. We, we went from those who did not like the things of God, who hated the fact that the God said we were spiritually blind and at war with him. We're like, that's all foolishness. And then something along the way, something along the way kind of 
nudged us. And we're like, we're like all of a sudden, we're, we're examining the life of Jesus. And we're reading the Bible. We, we're delighted by some of his life even. And we're like, why do I enjoy reading this? This is strange. Why do I like being around these weird people? They're strange. Like, what is going on? Maybe we're intrigued by them. Maybe we're intrigued by the, the Bible. But at some point, we came to view Jesus then as maybe historically accurate. And maybe there was a man named Jesus. He really did live. And maybe he died, but, but he wasn't God. He may not have been a good teacher or a good prophet. He, he wasn't God. And, and, then, and then somewhere along, along the line, we, we came to believe that we were sinners who needed God's grace. And we came to, to believe in Jesus like never before. We, were, we all of a sudden found ourselves with eyes, like new eyes, and saw for the very first time that Jesus is God the Son, God in the flesh, and everything sort of clicked. We, we saw his life and how he taught and how he performed miracles. We saw his kindness. And then we read with horror at how he died, realizing that he did that for us. And then we were given faith to believe that he didn't die needlessly or aimlessly, but rather according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And we were given faith to believe that Jesus willingly laid down his life. No one took it from him, but he laid it down. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And God the Son died as our substitute in our place and rose from the dead, conquering over death and paying our penalty of sin so that we could be offered forgiveness. And, and we were given faith to believe that what we read was true. And as a response, we turned from our old lives and we put our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Savior, God, and our King. And we, we believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead and we were given God the Spirit and he built a permanent residence in our hearts by faith. And, and we asked for forgiveness and we were declared innocent and we were adopted by, by faith into his family and everything was different. We are those who were blind to the truths of God and yet at the touch of Jesus, a little bit, by little bit, by little bit, we, we came to see clearly the things of God. And so one of the things that we see from this passage is that we are just like this blind man. We are just like him. Unless he comes and places salve on our eyes, as Revelation 3.18 says, by his grace, we will never see the holiness of God or our deep sinfulness. So we are those who are desperately need Jesus' touch or we would stay in blindness. So I think that's why we have this twofold healing to, to show us the compassion of Jesus as well as the journey of the disciples, but also to remind us something of our own journey. And for some of you, you might even still be on that journey. You're like, yo, I'm not there yet. Uh, I, 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 I'm not at that point where I believe all of this to be true. I'm, I'm sort of maybe partially seeing these things. I'm exploring that. And I pray that you would continue to do so. Read his words and surround yourself with his people and pray that he would give you eyes to see. And then the text continues, where we're gonna see how the disciples went from partial seeing, from blindness to partial seeing. Look with me in verse 27. In verse 27, it says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on his way, he asked the disciples, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? Let's pause there for a moment. If you remember how we began the series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter four, we talked about how Jesus, with one word, he calmed a great storm. Remember a mega storm? And he said one word, and all of a sudden there was mega peace. 
And then into the hearts of the disciples came a different kind of a storm, right? They started looking around at one another and they said, who is this? Who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. And so now as the structure of Mark's gospel has Jesus making this turn in verse 27 towards Jerusalem, he looks at them and says, who do people say I am? Who do people say that I am? And as Jesus asked that first question, he's specifically asking what other people say about him. What do they say? There, there have been lots of thoughts about him, a, a wide range, right? Depending on if you're talking to the Pharisees, if you ask the Pharisee, who is Jesus? They're like, he's filled with a demon. He, he, don't listen to him. Or Jairus, who he had healed his little daughter and brought her back from the dead, right? There's, there's mixed views on, on who is Jesus. And, and one thing that we've seen, especially in Mark chapter six, if you remember that from a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, some common thoughts that Jesus was either John the Baptist raised from the dead. Somehow his head had been reinserted back on his body and he's walking around. Uh, or he's Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of, of Israel's history that has been brought back in order to, to usher in maybe the Messiah, or maybe one of the other prophets. They say as much. But Jesus' ultimate question is, is really not about what other people say. For he asks that first, what do they say about me? But then he lasers in and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And now the disciples have been walking with Jesus for some time. They, they have heard all of his teachings and they've seen many mighty miracles. So what about them? What do they say? And it's here at this moment where the disciples must risk a personal confession about what they believe to be true. Jesus is point blank asking these guys, what about you? Not, not what do they say, what do, what do you say? And there's nowhere for them to run. They can't think anymore that he's asking some hypothetical question to someone else, somewhere else, right? He, he's point blank looking them in the eye. What do you say? Who am I? Faith, as we know, is expressed in our public confessions. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's calling them to not be privately those who believe in who he is, but publicly. Make a public stand. Who am I? And it's a great question to ask ourselves, especially if we've been exploring Jesus for a while. What do you say? Who is he? Is he a good prophet? Is he a good teacher? Is he something else? Or is he your God and your savior and your king? One pastor I read this week, he said, at some point, the colleagues of Jesus and everyone who has heard his name must look deeply within Jesus and deeply within themselves and come to a certain point. A certain point where, where they either make a decision that will risk commitment to Jesus or severance. I don't want nothing to do with him. But it's one way or the other. And it's Peter who pipes up and he answers that he believes Jesus is the Christ. He says, you are the Christ. And Peter's using a word that literally means the anointed one. The kings at this time, they were usually anointed with oil uh, as a kind of coronation. Uh, priests were as well in the Old Testament. They were anointed with, with oil as they were becoming priests. But the word Christos here has come to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, the king of all kings, the, the king who's going to put everything right. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Messiah. That's who you are. It is this beautiful moment where they've been walking with Jesus for over a year now, seeing miracle after miracle and teaching after teaching. They can't see, they don't understand. He keeps asking him questions like, I don't know. And they get to this point, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ. 
It is a beautiful moment. And this is all that Mark says. And Mark just keeps going. If you look at that, it just goes right into verse 30. And I love that. And I hate it at the same time. Mark is, he's a disciple of Peter. He tends to leave things out in his gospel. He tends to leave things out that elevate Peter. He intentionally, Peter intentionally doesn't want to make things about himself. So, so a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was walking on the water, we know from the other gospels that when they see him, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. Let me walk on the water. And, and Peter walks on water. Mark doesn't record that at all. Not at all. It doesn't even mention it. You would imagine if anyone, Mark would mention it. Peter is his, the guy who's discipled him his, like his whole life, right? Like you would imagine he would talk about it. He doesn't. And here, the same thing, Mark just keeps going. But, but in Matthew's gospel, we see the response of Jesus towards Peter. This is what Jesus says to him. He looks at him after he makes this thing in Mark chapter 16, verse 17. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, God has revealed this to you. This profession, therefore, we know is purely the work of God in Peter's life. It's not something that Peter read in a book or came to a conclusion based upon the evidentiary support that this must be true. No, it was, it was God the Father revealing this to Peter. In this moment, Peter has eyes to see. He has, for the first time ever, spiritual sight. But as we alluded to in a moment, Peter still sees dimly at this point. It's sort of like the first touch where he sees, but it's sort of dimly. We know that because in, in, uh, in a moment, uh, if, if you want to, we're not going to go over it together, but if you read verses 31 to 38, Peter doesn't understand what kind of kingdom Jesus has come to set up. Not at all. In fact, what we see in those verses is that Jesus, Jesus will say that he has been the kind of king that will come and will die on a cross, an excruciating death. And he will be rejected by the priests and the elders and the scribes, and he will stand condemned, taking upon himself judgment. And when Peter hears this, he takes Jesus aside, which is interesting because a moment ago, Jesus took this blind man aside and showed him great compassion. But Peter will take Jesus aside at hearing that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, and he rebukes Jesus. He says, no, you're not. You're not going to die. And Jesus looks at him squarely in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. Ha, huh, can you imagine? So he goes from seeing you're the Christ to get behind me, Satan, within eight verses, right? Like this, is, this is not a long time, right? He sees, not perfectly, right? He, he's, he's, he's in this process, but, it, but it's the work of God in his life. And so so the question that Jesus then poses to them is, is also the ultimate question that we should be asking. And it's something that we've asked over and over again in this series is, who do we say that Jesus is? Can he really be trusted? Do we believe that he is the Messiah? Do we, do we stand up publicly and, and join with other Christians? Do we get baptized and, and explain this and express this throughout our lives? Do we declare to our friends, to our neighbors, to the watching world, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he is the Christ. I believe he is the son of the living God. Or do we remain silent? And one of the things that is beautiful is, is that if, if we are those who profess and believe, if we are those who have been given eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah, then the same thing that is true of Peter is the same thing that is true of us. 
we are those who are the blessed of God if you have eyes to see. For flesh and blood doesn't reveal this to you, but who does? The Father. This is not something that you've done in and of your own if you believe in the good news of Jesus. It's not because you're smarter or more religious or a better person or more moral or you read the right books or you did the right things or you somehow earned your way to God by being stellar. No, it's purely the work of God in your life. If you see and you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, it, it's by no work of your own and purely by the work and the kindness and the grace of God given to you. It's not of works or else you'd be able to boast about it. Look what I did. No, it's by grace, undeserved grace. But there's also something beautiful in here that we can also see. And it's this, if we believe in our hearts that he is the Christ, we know that we are the blessed of God. We know that we have the blessing of God. We've been given eyes to see. God has allowed us to see this truth and he's given us faith to believe it. And so if, you're ever, if you were ever downcast or you're ever jealous of someone else's status or possessions, if you ever cry out to God and say, why me in the midst of affliction, you can hear these words, blessed are you. Blessed are you. You have been enabled to recognize the pearl of great price. And if God never gives you another blessing for the rest of your life, if you die in poverty through hunger or by the coronavirus, whatever it is of however you die in life, you will have no reason to do anything else but to proclaim his mercy and his kindness to everyone because he has been gracious to you. See, because the greatest blessing a human being can ever receive is the blessing of having eyes to see. Eyes to see. Friends, we are not promised health or wealth. We are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised that we will not die from lots of sicknesses and maladies and all of these things. But we are promised that if we have eyes to see, that Christ is ours. And that's far better because we will die. Something will kill us. Unless Christ comes back first, something will kill us. 100% of people die. I don't know if you know that stat or not. It's true. 100% of people die. We're all going to die somehow, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God knows our days. They're written in his book. We know he is sovereign over everything. We know that not a moment will happen outside of his control. He's sovereign over every jot and tittle of all things. All things bend to accomplish his purposes. And so we need not fear these things because we know that he is sovereign over it. We're not going to die before our time. We're not going to die inadvertently. If, if you're going to die of the coronavirus, he knows it. He's already planned it. You, you can't do anything to avoid it. If, if he's caused for, for you and his plan to, to die of cancer, there, there's nothing you can do to avoid this. The Lord has allotted our times and our spaces. He is sovereign over all of it. But friends, we can still be the blessed of God because if we have eyes to see, we have eyes to see, though our bodies may waste away and we may die, our souls are safe for forever. We are the blessed of God. That should cause great joy in our hearts to overflow within us. And, and as we were wrapping up, one, one last thing I just want to say is back to the beginning of our text. I, I, one last thing I want to say is, is this. Did you notice how the blind man first came to Jesus? 
Do you notice how, how did he get there? How did he get to Jesus? His friends brought him or somebody, we don't know if they're his friends or not, but some, some people brought him. And I don't want us to skip over this too quickly. Somebody saw this man, took him by the hand and brought him to Jesus and Jesus took him by the hand and Jesus healed him. And I think it's right that we should see something of what God has done in, in us. We are the blind man, but we should also see something of what God has called us to do as his people. We have been given the amazing opportunity and privilege by God to take those who are blind, like we once were, and to bring them before Jesus. That is a beautiful thing, to bring them firstly before Jesus in prayer, asking that God would heal their blindness, that he would give them spiritual sight. We all have people in our lives that are far from Christ. And we know that, that as we start talking to them, unless God moves in their heart and gives them eyes to see, they will miss it. And so this is, we need, to, we need to ask God for that. We need to labor in prayer for that. And we need to labor in sharing our lives and the good news of Jesus with them. We need to take them to Jesus. Asking that God would give them eyes to see. And we need to be expectant that he would do so. For as we do so throughout our lives in the spirit-driven faithfulness, we will see the miracle of God in giving sight to the blind. Brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity, both through our prayers and through our lips, as we share the good news of Jesus, to see Jesus heal blind people and give them sight. And all of this is according to the plans and purposes of God the Father who loves to glorify himself. He loves to give blind people sight. And he loves to use our lives to help in that. It's wild. He doesn't need us, but he, he uses broken people like us in this. So we ought to be people as a church that are praying for those who, are, who don't have eyes to see and are giving our lives, to sharing our lives in the good news of Jesus with them. So let us do so. Let us pray and labor, knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so let's ask him to do this often. So two questions in closing. Firstly is, is have you come to the place where you see your sin and your need for Jesus? And if so, will you believe upon him today? And then for my Christian brothers and sisters, who are we bringing before Jesus in prayer? Are we bringing Jesus to them as we invite them to read God's word with us and explore Jesus? Let's pray and then we'll be done. So Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this series that we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that you would use it in our lives. Produce faithfulness and produce hope and joy within our hearts. May we be a people who constantly love you and are known, are known by, uh, by others of, of being those who are compassionate and kind. God, I thank you that you have given me the gift of sight. When I was someone who was convinced that I could see, I was someone who was convinced that the religious behavior of my life made me acceptable before you and you gave me eyes to see. Nope, that's not true. You gave me eyes to see my sin and the holiness of God, and, and you convinced me of the truthfulness of, of Jesus. You, you gave me eyes to see, and you called me blessed because of that, for I know that it is, it is your work in my life that has done that. You called me to yourself, and now you give, you give me the opportunity to give my life to praying for others and to sharing with them of the good news of Jesus.
and you use that effectively to bring them to have sight so that they may know, so they may see. So God, I pray that you would save many people in our city. I pray that you would use our lives to make Jesus known here in this place. I love you and I ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen.